From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Russian invasion of Ukraine might cascade into digital warfare. If Russia pursues cyber attacks against our companies, our critical infrastructure, we are prepared to respond. Colorado's governor, meanwhile, has told his IT folks to prepare. We'll speak with an expert at Mines. Later in our series On Pain, a former football player who'd resigned himself to anguish. I was a linebacker, so you're essentially just a battering ram. I was convinced that it was never going to get better. Then word came of a study at CU into pain reprocessing therapy. Also ahead, a new satellite that'll have its eye on Colorado, including lightning here. Where the lightning strike was, how much lightning there was, and then we can take a look at that area and look for hotspots. Legacy Circle members include Colorado Public Radio in their estate plans. We want to perpetuate what Colorado Public Radio is doing. And I like to be able to know that I had a part in that. We're hoping that something we leave continues on in a positive way. I think that's part of building an understanding and appreciation that will help perpetuate for future generations. Information at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Ukraine is fighting for its life, and the globe is fighting to grasp the repercussions of the Russian invasion. Here in Colorado, Governor Jared Polis has said he'll welcome refugees. He also told his IT workforce to shore up cyber defenses. There have been pro-Ukraine demonstrations at the state capitol and across the park, the Denver City County building, was blanketed in blue and yellow light. Let's get perspective from Elizabeth Van Weed Davis, professor of international politics and policy at the Colorado School of Mines. She's also the author of Shadow Warfare, Cyber War Policy in the United States, Russia, and China. And Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. This story is changing by the hour, if not by the minute. What should we be on the lookout for in the immediate future? And I know this is something you'll actually teach in class today. That's right. When I'm done with talking with you today, I'm going to go and speak with my students, many of whom are budding cybersecurity specialists. Um, So I, I think that what we're looking at right now is trying to contain the cyber warfare that's going on between Russia and Ukraine. Specifically, uh, we want to make sure that Russia understands that they're not going to uh, have major cyber attacks against the United States or NATO and NATO countries in general. Well, how do you contain such a thing? It seems, in a way, difficult to do so. Right. So it is difficult to do so. So far, we've been doing it diplomatically and with words. There is a policy that looks something like the mutual assured destruction that we had talked about in the past with nuclear weapons. Mm. And here, the United States and, again, NATO have made it very clear that if Russia decides that it wants to spread its cyber attacks beyond Ukraine, 
that we will respond in in kind and the United States and several of the other NATO countries have considerable cyber weapons and cyber policy on their side. I think what we saw image-wise from Ukraine over the weekend is very much the conventional warfare, the invasion on the ground. But uh, there have indeed then been cyber attacks by Russia towards Ukraine and perhaps in the opposite direction as well? Yes, there certainly have been. There have been major DDoS or denial of service attacks on both communication media sites and on government sites as well. We've seen Russia go so far as to shut down significant parts of the Ukrainian internet and we're seeing specific targeted attacks from the Russian military, the GRU, which has some pretty sophisticated attackers on their side. And they also seem to be working with Belarus and the Belarusian military in uh, their attacks. They've been doing some interesting things in the field in terms of trying to shut down what we would call command and control, which is the ability of the Ukrainian government to speak with its commanders and soldiers in the field. Mm. And we know that Russia has also been doing some fishing uh, with Ukrainian soldiers in an attempt to figure out what is their location and things along those lines. I'll note, according to the Associated Press, the websites of Ukrainian embassies appear to be down in Denmark, Britain, Germany, Spain, and Portugal. A hack is suspected there. Uh, The websites of several Russian media outlets were hacked today with a message condemning Moscow's invasion. I think it's a a good reminder, Professor, that cyber warfare can be conducted by non-state actors as well, no? Absolutely. Um, Ukraine is uh, definitely trying to mobilize all of its actors. Uh, Russia has some non-governmental groups, particularly ransomware groups like NotPetya and people like that, that initially were involved. But it seems like Russia has pulled those non-government actors back quite a bit because they're concerned that non-governmental actors may decide that hitting the United States or NATO countries is all right. And so they'd rather have some control over it. Ukraine's not quite in that same position. And Ukraine has been asking its own uh, internet um, uh, actors in Ukraine, whether they're official government actors or not, to get involved. And then, of course, we know that Anonymous has decided that it, too, wants to have something to say about this. Earlier in the conversation, you evoked mutually assured destruction, which was a term that we associated indeed with nuclear weapons during the Cold War. Uh, The idea that the Soviet side and the American side each knew that they had arsenals, nuclear arsenals big enough to essentially wipe out humanity. Compare the kind of cyber aspect of warfare today with the nuclear aspect of warfare during the Cold War. And of course, the nuclear aspect still exists today. I spent a fair bit of the weekend worrying about that myself. But, but how important has, 
the cyber aspect of this become? Well, so I would argue that the cyber aspect has become increasingly important. I think that some of the importance of cyber weapons is because unlike nuclear weapons, which almost we say in 2022, not completely, but almost, we say that they're really weapons of deterrence. They're not weapons that have been used uh, since World War II. There is um, a lot of hesitance behind using a weapon, which, as you say, could just destroy humanity as we know it, where cyber weapons are much more usable. And we can use cyber weapons to do a number of kind of scary stuff. And one of them is we can totally shut down electricity in other countries. And, and we know that the United States and Russia both have the ability to do this. And one of the ways that we know it is because Russia has done this to Ukraine, not once, but twice. Without electricity, you can't run your banks, you can't run your gas pumps, you are in serious trouble with your hospitals, although most hospitals have uh, backup generators. There's some real ways that you can do some pretty significant damage. You can get dams to release their water. Mm. There's been some Russian playing around with nuclear power plants in other countries. There's some nasty stuff that you can do with cyber attacks. And of course, that's an escalation. And so there must be some interplay, Professor, between a cyber escalation and conventional or nuclear weapons. Yes. And I think that's just the the central point here. I think you've hit it right on the head. And that the United States, and certainly this is what Putin is broadcasting, is if you hit us too hard with cyber attacks, then we will resort to kinetic weapons or physical weapons. We will drop bombs and, and um, lob missile attacks and things along those lines. Uh, the United States has been outspoken in saying there can be a cyber attack that ends up in a much more serious kinetic or physical kind of warfare. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And from the Colorado School of Mines in Golden, we're joined by Professor of International Politics and Policy, Elizabeth Van Wee Davis. Uh, her latest book is Shadow Warfare, Cyber War Policy in the United States, Russia, and China. And Professor, China is a, a theme I want to pick up on because we saw China, India, and the United Arab Emirates abstain Friday on a UN Security Council resolution demanding Moscow stop its attack on Ukraine. Uh, what does China's stance right now tell you? Well, China is trying to take a nuanced stance. One of their most important international principles, and this has been their principle since the 1950s, is respecting the sovereignty and integrity of other countries. At the same time, it seems like they have some level of agreement with Russia that Ukraine is perhaps part of, of Russia, which is what President Putin has been arguing for a couple of years now. And I think also that NATO's move east, 
right, including countries like Latvia, Lithu um, Lithuania, and Estonia, including countries like Poland and Romania and whatnot, that as they move closer to Russia, as NATO includes more countries near the Russian border, that that is a threat to Russia. I think one of the most fascinating aspects of the idea of cyber warfare, to return to that, uh, is that in some ways it's rooted here in Colorado and your own university, the Colorado School of Mines, in 1996 as part of a two-year Russian cyber espionage operation dubbed Moonlight Maze, the Baby Doe cyber attack occurred at Mines. And it's one of the focal points of your book, Shadow Warfare. Uh, briefly, why were the Russians interested in hacking Mines? That's a great question. <laughs> well, I think that when you hear from your IT department, whether you're at Mines or whether you're at any other organization, and they say, I know dual authentication is a little cumbersome, but please use it. Your password has been breached. Please change it. This is a phishing attack. Please don't click on this. That they're telling you something serious. And I think with Colorado School of Mines, it's particularly enticing to the Russians because of the kind of research that we do here. And they're interested in knowing what is the cutting edge that we're doing right now in cybersecurity and in knowing other things as well. So espionage isn't limited just to weapons and government secrets. They're interested in some of the industry secrets that we're working on here, too, in terms of um, mineral exploration and things along those lines. And, I, you know, I don't think we even knew what two-factor authentication was in 96, back when this uh, attack occurred. I, I guess I, I want to ask you a question um, as a human being right now. Uh, are yes. you... How, are you worried? Are you scared? I, I I doom scrolled a lot this weekend, Professor. I I am scared, Ryan, and I too doom scrolled a lot this weekend. Um, I think that we're seeing Russia take an aggressive stance that we really have not seen since the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, and um, I think that certainly cyber attacks are happening. I, I'm not sure. I think it's a coincidence that when Japan decided to back up the sanctions that NATO is trying to hold against Russia, that Toyota got a cyber attack. Hmm. I, I think that this is a, a very real phenomenon. And of course, for me, it has a very personal element, which as I have a beautiful baby grandson on the way that'll be born in a few weeks, and he's supposed to be a dual American-Russian citizenship. So I think it's shaking up our perception of international order and, and what it looks like after the Cold War. Thank you for reflecting on that for us and for your expertise on cyber. I appreciate it. Oh, it's been absolutely my pleasure, and stay safe. Elizabeth Van Wee Davis is a professor of international politics and policy at the School of Mines in Golden. Her latest book is Shadow Warfare, Cyber War Policy in the United States, Russia, and China. 
and we'll be right back with the next installment of our series on pain. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver has an air pollution problem, and the world has a climate change problem. All those fancy new RTD trains should help fix that, right? If we really want to see a better city, a better world, we have to change. I'm Nathaniel Miner, host of CPR's new podcast, Ghost Train. In this show, I take a deep look at how transit could fix big issues our cities are facing, if we let it. Follow Ghost Train wherever you get your podcasts. Pain is physical, but it's also mental. And that mind-body connection is the subject of On Pain this time, our new series about pain management. Greg Whistler of Arvada had chronic pain that began when he was a teenager. He says it started with high school football and continued into college. I was a linebacker, so you're essentially just a battering ram. I was convinced that it was never going to get better. He says he took a lot of Tylenol. He tried opioids for a short time, but felt they were just masking the pain, not treating it. Not only that. I had some uh, family members that were alcoholics. So I said, okay, they've got addictive personalities. I'm related to them. I may have an addictive personality. I don't want to get started. Payne Whistler says warped his outlook on life. It was a mindset and it was a depressing mindset and it started to impact my personality. You know, you're in pain constantly and you can only put up with it for so long and it would come out and I'd be irritable or I'd snap at people that didn't need to be snapped at. And the pain just kept getting worse. It got so bad oh, seven or eight years ago, I literally woke up paralyzed essentially from the waist down and couldn't move. The back pain was so horrible. I finally went into the hospital. They x-rayed me and did an MRI and they're like, yeah, your back is totally jacked. And they said, we're going to fuse your back today. And I said, no, you're not. He just didn't think the rewards were worth the risks. Well, one day, Greg Whistler got an email about a pain study at CU Boulder. He put his name in and was accepted. The study involved a treatment called pain reprocessing therapy. The theory is that pain results in part from processes in the brain, not purely from the initial injury. I'm sitting in that second session and we're talking for... You know, about a half an hour, and I'm thinking, well, this is a really long onboarding process. What's going on? And then I realized, oh my gosh, this is the study, and I'm I'm in therapy. <laughs> like, that's all it seemed to be. At first, he was a bit put out when the therapist talked about what might be behind his pain. Your pain being in your head versus being in your mind, and they're two different things. And and as I kind of told him, I said, you've been telling me for 25, 30 years, I've been living in back pain and it's all in my head. But Whistler started to feel it work. The therapist had given him techniques to reframe how he perceived the pain. I'd be sitting in this chair and he would ask me to look inside myself and describe the pain, whether it be color or sensations or heat or whatever. And, And oftentimes, and the pain was different and it would be in different locations. So I would describe that to him. He said, I don't want you to try to make it go away. I don't want you to think about it in that way. He said, just observe it and watch it and describe it. So I would do those things. And pretty soon, honestly, the pain would just dissipate. Whistler says he is pain free more than three years after treatment. It uh, has absolutely cured me. It was as simple as that. 
I feel really relieved for Greg. The skeptic in me has a ton of questions as well about a treatment we've only just begun to describe. So for more on this study, we are joined by Yoni Ashar, the researcher who conducted it. He's a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist who's now with Weill Cornell Medicine in New York. And Yoni, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. And what Ashar found in his research, Dr. Karen Knight has seen firsthand at the clinic where she practices in Golden. She's a pain management physician. Hi, Dr. Knight. Hi, how are you? Doing well. So glad you could join us. So, Yoni, uh, you believe that pain is due, at least in part, to processes in the brain rather than purely the bodily injury. We just heard from Greg Whistler, who took part in your study, injured while playing football. How do you see his injury and the resulting pain he described? In many cases, there can be an injury, and then the pain is initially due to that injury. But over, you know, in coming weeks and months, the injury will heal, but the symptoms, the pain can persist due to changes in brain pathways. The brain can learn the pain, and then the pain can live on loop due to the changes in these brain circuits relatively independent of any injuries or problems in the body. The brain can learn the pain. So is that about neuroplasticity? That's exactly right. Yeah, our brain is always trying to make sense of the world and make predictions or inferences about what's happening in our body. And our brain could have the belief that there's an injury in our body, but that could be an outdated and basically an outdated memory, a misprediction or what we call a false alarm, that the pain system is going off, is sounding the alarm, and the alarm is really going off. The, the pain is real, but there really is no injury. Huh. I, I'm trying to think of what the evolutionary reason behind that would be. Like, why wouldn't the brain naturally want to reroute to avoid the sense of pain? That's just fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely a, a bit of a puzzle. I think one aspect of it is the better safe than sorry mentality. Better to err on the side of there might be a threat than to err on being uh, cavalier and thinking everything is fine when there isn't. And that's a bias that we have in all our sensory processing, that we humans are all biased to orient toward threats. Because if you miss one threat, you could be dead evolutionarily. So uh, we don't want to miss threats. Hmm. And sometimes we get too good at orienting towards those threats. Is this theory a hard sell when people come in having experienced chronic pain, sometimes for years or decades, might they even find this insulting, Yoni? Some people do, but in my experience, the vast majority find it deeply deeply validating. Many of these people have seen literally dozens of doctors and received all sorts of explanations that don't make sense, that don't hold water, that contradict. And when we explain to them how the brain can learn pain and we think this is what's happening with them, there can be a really big aha moment and people feel often heard and validated for the first time. 
Dr. Knight, based on your own clinical experience, what do you make of this idea that the brain can learn the pain? Oh, um, chronic pain is definitely a brain process. It's changes in the brain pathways. It's changes in neuroinflammation. And um, the challenge is, from my perspective clinically, is how do we change the way that we practice medicine to focus on these kinds of brain changes and neuroplasticity in order to get people well. Is there a physical aspect to that then? In other words, uh, and we can talk more about this with Yoni, the idea of remolding the brain, the neural pathways, but then is there... Um, an exercise or a series of exercises that need to go along with that, Dr. Knight? So brain neuroplasticity takes a lot of inputs. If you decided that you were going to learn to play a new instrument today, you would develop new pathways between your eyes, your ears, your fine motor skills. The same thing has to happen with rewiring the brain after chronic pain. There has to be a movement component. There has to be an autonomic nervous system component. Mm. And there has to be a cognitive and emotional component too. And when you give people the hope that they can make those changes, then they can hook on and start the recovery process. Now, will their brain always be more sensitive to stress, to new injuries, et cetera, and be more susceptible to flares? Yes, but we can give them a pathway to manage those situations and actually progress. Is this being taught in medical schools, doctor? Oh, no. Um, when, when we started this study, and I was on the study with Yoni as a, as a minor participant, um, people in medicine didn't even know the term central sensitization. And that's just one of the terms about these brain neuroplastic changes. But um, Clifford Wolf's paper came out in about 2010 to talk about that, but that was in the basic science literature. Doctors are only beginning to say, oh, there's something else going on here, and maybe it has something to do with the brain. What was the term you used again? Just say it again for us. Central sensitization. Okay. So changes in those fundamental pathways in the brain, that is one term that is used um, that when there is an input from the body that is processed in the spinal cord and the brain, instead of that house alarm that Yoni was talking about um, going off when an intruder is breaking in the house, a leaf is falling outside of your, your house. So your, your sensitivity is such that things that shouldn't cause pain will flare an individual with this type of chronic pain. Interesting. 
And, and Yoni, you hypothesize that the therapy the kind Greg Whistler sat through might change this, might help. Tell us more about that. We ran a clinical trial. Greg was one of 150 participants. And we found that two-thirds of the people randomized to pain reprocessing therapy were pain-free or nearly pain-free after treatment. And that, for me, was a real insight or you know, a real amazing finding that we've known for a long time that psychological treatments can help take the edge off pain or help people live more gracefully with the pain. But mm-hmm. But what we found in this study was that a majority of people had their pain eliminated with a psychological treatment. And that is um, quite a provocative finding in my view. Provocative indeed, this pain reprocessing therapy. And what might that therapy sound or look like? Just say a few more words about it. Pain is the appraisal of threat, or I should say this form of pain is neuroplastic or primary pain. There are different pain subtypes, and we could talk about that. Clearly, not all pain is is this kind of learned pain. But this learned pain is an appraisal of threat. The brain sense of danger, danger, danger. And the goal of the therapy is to flip that to safety, to understanding that these sensations are safe, my body is safe, there's actually nothing really wrong with my back, and I'm healthy, and it's by... Uh, cognitive techniques for learning to to think differently about the pain, some mindfulness techniques, and like Dr. Knight was saying, getting active again, starting to get, you know, back on the tennis court, back on the bicycle, whatever it is, uh, understanding that the body is intact and healthy. Dr. Knight, I know that you are interested in how psychedelics might boost or push fast forward on the kinds of neuroplastic changes that might need to occur to eliminate pain. Uh, Would you say a few words about that? Psychedelics have been being explored in mental health um, a great deal. And I'm sure many people are aware of the studies. What psychedelics do in sort of layman's terms is open pathways to neuroplastic changes. And unfortunately, because chronic pain is not really seen as mental health, Mm. it's not even seen as a brain disorder, but neuroscience says that it is. There's more um, crossover between certain types of mental health disorders and chronic pain in their pathways than there is with an orthopedic injury, for instance. The hope for psychedelics in chronic pain is that it might be another tool in our toolbox. I think what um, pain reprocessing therapy did is give us hope and an opportunity, but not everyone's going to be able to respond to that type of psychological treatment. And there may be people who need deeper, impactful ways to access the brain. Psychedelics might be one of them. Transcranial magnetic stimulation might be another. 
but we have ways to actually reach out and touch the brain that are evidence-based that we did not have 20 years ago. Hmm. Yanni, I wonder how much of this research you feel is critical because of the opioid crisis that we've seen. Yeah, the you know, research shows that one of the main reasons people do not taper off opioids is fear of uncontrolled pain. And so if we can give people some tools for working with their pain, for reducing or eliminating their pain, there might be, for many, more willingness to then reduce their opioid usage. Fascinating. Thank you both for being with us. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Yoni Ashar told us about his research into pain reprocessing therapy at CU Boulder. He's now with Weill Cornell Medicine in New York. Dr. Karen Knight is a pain management physician at Panorama Orthopedics and Spine Center in Golden. And we spoke as part of our series on pain. Colorado Matters continues with a new satellite that will train its lens on Colorado's increasingly volatile weather patterns. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is CPR News and KRCC. Inspired by Booker T. Washington's Back to the Land movement, which aimed to give African-Americans property ownership and self-sufficiency, O.T. Jackson founded a self-sustaining black settlement 30 miles east of Greeley in 1910. People who saw the potential headed to the prairie, built homes, farms, and churches, a school, a restaurant, and a cement factory. The land was dear to them, so they named the settlement Deerfield. Minerva Jackson ran the thriving town. Picnics, fishing parties, and dancing enlivened Deerfield. Land value increased astronomically over a decade, but the good times did not last. Just two decades after its founding, the community collapsed under repeated droughts, the Dust Bowl, and the Great Depression. Today, it's a ghost town, but there are efforts to make Deerfield a part of the national park system to help tell the story of America's black experience. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Cobal and Company. Weather forecasts are about to get more accurate. That is good news for, well, pretty much everyone. From farmers to flight attendants to fifth graders who walk to school. This is thanks to satellites built in Colorado by Lockheed Martin. A new one launches tomorrow. Adrian Quadra is program director for weather and earth science at Lockheed. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Appreciate it. Okay, so two of these weather satellites have watched the United States for decades. The program is called GOES, which stands for Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellites. Over time, an older one gets replaced with an upgraded model, and that's what's happening tomorrow. Uh, Adrian, tell us where these satellites are exactly. Yeah, great question. So um, the two operational satellites, and we call those GOES-16 and GOES-17, are at the equator 22,000 miles above the Earth over the East Coast and West Coast of the United States. And uh, they're essentially staring at the Americas 24-7, 365 days a year. So these are geostationary, right? That means that they're following a specific point. That is correct. So as the Earth rotates, the satellite rotates at basically the same 
speed. So it's always looking at the same place over the Earth. And what is their range of vision? They're basically looking at the entire hemisphere. So you can basically see the full disk uh, with each of them. And when you put the two together, you get a really good view of everything happening over the United States. It's like having two ring doorbells in the sky looking down on our country. <laughs> Absolutely. The satellite launching tomorrow is named GOES-T. Uh, it will replace the Western satellite. So what happens to the old Western one? So once GOES-T reaches its orbit and goes through all of its checkout to make sure that it's actually working properly as it's supposed to, and it'll become operational over the West Coast. The older satellite, GOES-17, will actually be moved to about 105 degrees west. And so it's basically over the middle of the country, and it'll be a spare satellite. Uh, in case anything happens with the two operational satellites, we'll always have one ready to go to take over. Because as you can imagine how important these satellites are to our daily lives, it's critical to have a working spare ready to take over at any time. Hmm. So GOES-T, to be clear, will be the satellite that would watch Colorado. Isn't that right? That is correct. Yeah. You might call 17 a spare with a nail in its tire because when it launched in 2018, it had a flaw, a problem with the main instrument, uh, not built by Lockheed, I'll say. What went wrong? Well, so you're right. During the, the testing that is done to make sure that the satellites and all the instruments are working properly, uh, the main instrument, the advanced baseline imager built by L3 Harris, it, they discovered an issue with the instrument's cooling system. That's basically the, the loop heat pipe subsystem, which transfers heat from the electronics to the radiator, which rejects the heat. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't really operating as its design capacity. Um, so there's a, a slight reduction in, in the data availability that it's able to produce. And so through some investigation, NASA, NOAA, and, and L3 Harris figured out what the issue was, came up with a, an updated design solution, and actually fixed it for the GOES-T satellite. So when we launch GOES-T, it'll have the, the new loop heat pipe design and configuration, and we anticipate that the instrument will work to its design capacity. Fascinating. It reminds me of when our IT closet across the hall gets too warm. You can just expect that the performance will deteriorate. Um, but so indeed, GOES-T is not just a pure replacement. It's better, and you expect better performance in terms of weather watching, right? How, how much better? Well, currently, uh, I believe Noah is estimating that from its peak instrument performance, the instrument is currently delivering about 94% of its data. And so we'll get an increase back to its uh, design capacity. The way I like to think about it is these weather satellites, the GOES weather satellites, are a, a significant improvement over the previous generation. And that's really like going from standard definition to high definition. So with GOES-T, as we uh, have the operational satellites on orbit, we'll get a really nice improvement that the National Weather Service and the meteorologists and the forecasters are really getting a chance to take advantage of. There's a really large camera on board, right? What can it do? So the, the large camera is, uh, and we have a couple of instruments that are pointing at the Earth, and so those are, are mainly looking at the Earth weather. And so the advanced baseline imager is looking at improved hurricane tracking looking at intensity forecasts, helping with earlier warning and detection of uh, severe weather. And we also have a geostationary lightning mapper, yeah. and that's built by Lockheed Martin as well. 
And it's really looking at the lightning, lightning flashes, cloud to cloud, cloud to ground, lightning flashes. And the importance of the lightning is that as you look at the intensification of the lightning, essentially how fast the lightning is building up, it's really the first indicator for severe weather and severe thunderstorms. And so by understanding the lightning phenomenology, we're able to faster be able to predict where the storms are coming and how strong they're going to be. Hmm. Of course, I also associate lightning with fires, Adrian. Yes, that's a very good point. A lot of fires are started by lightning. And um, the couple, the two instruments combined can tell you a couple of really interesting things. The first is where the lightning strike was, how much lightning there was. And then with the advanced baseline imager, we can take a look at that area and look for hotspots. There's um, a band on the ABI instrument itself that's specifically looking at hotspots that are basically fire spots. Oh. And so between looking for those hotspots and then seeing the smoke that is coming out of those specific hotspots and kind of the directions, we can clearly start seeing where the fires are developing, but not only where they're developing and where they are, but also based on the imagery and the winds and the forecasting, we can help the responders figure out how to fight that fire best and how to keep everybody safe. There's even search and rescue assistance here that I understand it can contribute. What does GOES add to our understanding of climate change, do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, with continuous and you know, global, when we look at the different satellites that are up there, the long-term satellite observation really gives us these new insights into climate change and climate variability. If you look at just in the United States, the number of extreme weather events over the, the last couple of years and the last decades in 2021, just last year, we had 20 events. Uh, when I say events, I, I'm talking about droughts, floods, severe storms, wildfires. That's 20 events that were more than a billion dollars of damage each. And the, the year before that, in 2020, we had 22. Those are two records. If I look at the last 40 years that NOAA has the data for, the average is about seven. And so we are seeing an increase in extreme weather events and the damage that those extreme weather events are causing basically year over year. And the GOES weather satellites are a part of understanding those changes and what it means to our country and our world. And one of those GOES satellites is getting a big upgrade. That's what we are talking about right now on Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest from Lockheed Martin in Littleton is Adrian Quadro. Okay, Adrian, earlier in the conversation, you said that GOES, this upgraded satellite, has instruments pointed at Earth, which makes me wonder, will it have instruments pointed not at Earth, like at space? Yes. Part of the, of the mission for the GOES weather satellites is also space weather. So beyond just the Earth weather that we've talked about, we have multiple instruments that are looking at the sun and looking, uh, I'll say, in situ at space. And so we have a combination of uh, solar imagers, we have magnetometers, and we have X-ray irradiance sensors. And we're basically looking at the sun, looking at complex active regions, looking for solar flares and eruptions that would give rise to uh, solar storms and, uh, and space weather 
that could affect life here on Earth as well. That's right, because solar weather has a real effect on our lives, on our electronics here on Earth, right? That is correct. Um, I'll say generally speaking, space weather is critical, right? It can have devastating effects, both for what I'd consider you know, national security assets, part of our nation's critical infrastructure, including our other space assets, to sort of our, our daily lives. That's you know, interrupted communications, reduced navigational accuracy, think GPS signals, to affecting air travel, sort of where planes are needing to route if there is going to be sort of a severe space weather storm that's going to affect us here. Uh, and even power grids on Earth will fluctuate depending on how severe a, a space weather storm can be. Thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. Adrian Quadra is Program Director for Weather and Earth Science at Lockheed Martin in Littleton. The GOES-T satellite launches tomorrow from Cape Canaveral aboard an Atlas V rocket from another Colorado company, United Launch Alliance. This is all permitting the weather, of course. The Marshall Fire proved that dangerous wildfires aren't limited to mountains and forests. Suburban grasslands are also vulnerable. Which raises a question— Should land managers literally fight fire with fire and set more prescribed burns along the front range? From our climate team, here's CPR's Sam Brash. It was a fairly modest house compared to a lot of others, but it was home to us. It's one of those bright, chilly mornings when Larry Donner looks over the remains of his home in Louisville. He zeroes in on one piece of rubble. It's a scrap of charred siding just laying in the snow. And if you'll notice, that's... James Hardy siding, mainly concrete. It is extremely fire resistive, and as you can see, it's stacked up next to a burned out hovel. Wrapping his home in concrete was just one way Donner tried to prepare his home for something like the Marshall Fire. He also installed a fire resistant roof. And I took the wood deck off of the back of the house because wood decks tend to spread fires into houses. So we did what we could to build a resistive home in what we thought was a safe neighborhood. Now, if this sounds like somebody who knows about wildfires, it is. Donner spent 23 years as the fire chief for the city of Boulder. He retired in 2014. Donner says his efforts to protect his home didn't work out, but he thinks they might have if Boulder County communities had embraced another tool to reduce fire risk. Specifically around grasslands, they need to really allow for and encourage prescribed fires. Donner isn't alone in calling for more prescribed fires in suburban grasslands. Many fire scientists think it's an underused technique, especially as climate change makes the world a more flammable place. We need to learn how to coexist with fire. Victoria Donovan is a researcher at the University of Nebraska. She says the past could offer a path forward. Fire was once a natural part of the Great Plains ecosystem, a region stretching from the Rockies east to the Mississippi. And fires were largely stewarded by Native American groups. And so prescribed fire and fire application in the Great Plains has been, um, you know, basically how this region evolved for uh, thousands of years. Those fires all but disappeared after Euro-American settlers arrived and brought a culture of almost complete fire suppression. That shift has led to a buildup of grasses and what's called woody encroachment, where trees and bushes take over prairies in the absence of fire. Donovan says that could be one reason the Great Plains have seen more than a five-fold increase in acres burned over the last few decades. The biggest thing that 
we need to overcome as a society is a fear of, of fire. Obviously, fire can be extremely damaging, but it's just a, a fundamental part of the systems that we live in. And land managers in Boulder County, they tend to agree. We have uh, really thousands of acres that we, we'd be ready to burn in any given year, but it's just so difficult to get that on the ground. John Potter is the Resource and Stewardship Manager for the City of Boulder Open Space and Mountain Parks. The agency controls a large portion of what's now the Marshall Fire burn scar. He isn't convinced a prescribed burn would have prevented the disaster. After all, it started in a record drought and was fed by winds topping 100 miles an hour. But he thinks controlled burns are helpful. The problem is they're just really tough to pull off. That's really due to the, the complexities of, of using prescribed fire as a tool. Complexities like Colorado's air quality rules, which ban prescribed burns in lower elevations in the winter, or the fact that fires actually fertilize grasslands, so any prescribed burning would need to be repeated every few years, or just basic safety. Rapid suburban development means millions of Coloradans now live in grassy areas prone to wildfire. Potter says those are all reasons many land managers focused on forested areas. Because that's what we thought the big risk was. Now we have to be looking more at the grasslands as well as the forest lands. Donner, the former fire chief, thinks that's a good first step, but he doubts it'll lead to more prescribed fires unless people rethink what they want from grassy open spaces near their homes. What they want to think is if it's natural, it's untouched. But flip side of that, if it's natural and you don't do the management, you get periodic fires. And Donner would much rather have frequent controlled blazes if it helps prevent a grass fire becoming another suburban inferno. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Tonight, the entertainment company AEG bands together with the Colorado music community to raise money for survivors of the Marshall Fire. It's a virtual benefit concert with an all-star lineup that includes national headliners Dave Matthews and Winona Judd, as well as local mainstays, the Lumineers, Big Head Todd, and Nathaniel Rateliff, who was the first artist to sign up. Hopefully this is an opportunity for all of us to consider how much the wildfire season is going to continue to worsen and what we're going to do about western water conservation here in Colorado and, and in the western states. But thank you so much for having me. We're excited to be here, and hopefully we can do an old-fashioned barn raising for this small community in Boulder. AEG presents the Marshall Fire Benefit Concert, streaming tonight at 7 on the Veeps platform. It ain't all right, the hardness of my head. I close your eyes, spin around, say, hard times that you could find in Hinduism's womb. But it's still all right. That's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.